Muchas gracias. Up until last year, the journey I'm making would have been difficult and dangerous. Yeah, we stopped to get some directions and the, the two guys immediately knew uh, where we were headed and wanted to, you know, did ask if it was all it was arranged because I guess a lot of people show up here uh, uninvited. I'm going to meet rebels from the left-wing FARC movement in Colombia. They were at war with the Colombian government for over 50 years. A political war between left and right. The war made large parts of the countryside very dangerous. Over 200,000 people were killed. I'm Luke Holland. I lived and worked in Colombia as a human rights activist a number of years ago. Now I'm back to see the changes that have been happening here. The world's longest conflicts appears to be nearing an end after more than 50 years of fighting. Today, in 2016, the rebels and the government signed a historic peace agreement, just like in Ireland 20 years ago. And they now have a peace process, and the fighters have decommissioned their weapons. Around the country, there, there was uh, just over two dozen of these demobilization points were agreed in the peace agreement. They leave the areas. Uh, where they're active and where they're controlling, and they make their way to these camps. These used to be Colombia's number one enemies, who for the past five months have gathered in so-called transitional zones, preparing their next move. This camp is on the side of a steep mountain, and for security reasons can only be approached on foot. You can see for 100 miles around. The views behind us are pretty spectacular. Mountains and valleys. You could be just walking up a hillside in Wicklow. Perdona, amigo. Buscamos a Yair. Somos unos periodistas irlandeses. Hemos quedado con Yair. ¿Sabes quién es? Up until very recently, the people here were living in the jungle, constantly on the move and fighting with the Colombian army. But today, things are very different. You hear an awful lot of laughter walking around this camp. I mean, people seem relaxed. This is obviously the area where people, you know, eat and meet and congregate. We've got a, a sort of dining area and there's some beds and some accommodation up there in the trash. There's a very busy kitchen right in front of us. Uh, I see they've got, you know, proper refrigeration. They've got everything. They're very open. They've said just walk around freely, talk to people. The former rebels spend a lot of time now in construction and improving their camp facilities, waiting for what happens next. One former fighter is keen to talk about life during the conflict. He calls himself Illich. All experiences of war are brutal. It's not just the fact that you're acting against your own human nature. But when there are shootings and emergencies, your instinct is to escape. But as a guerrillero, you have to keep going and obey orders even when you are putting your own life in danger. 
Seeing your comrades die is also a brutal experience. Watching young men in the army die after fighting them, even when you have managed to surround them to, as we say, subdue them in battle, it is still hard seeing those guys die. As a revolutionary, you are also a humanist, and we only use weapons because that was the only way to do politics in this country. We didn't really have a choice. In my case, for example, politics had already cost me two attempts on my life in Bogotá. Illich is one of about 8,000 fighters, both men and women, who are now part of the peace process. At one stage, he was captured by the army and imprisoned. The hardest moment for me was when I was arrested. They attacked the camp where we were and we started fighting, even though we were at a disadvantage. We were surrounded and four comrades who were under my command died. One of my comrades was injured and while we were getting them out, we found ourselves in front of a group of soldiers. We started shooting. There were bullets flying in all directions and when we ran out of ammunition, we were arrested. These transition camps are working for now, but there's a very serious problem. As the rebels move out of the areas they once controlled, other armed groups are moving in. The experiences of peacebuilding in Ireland has led to Irish people being closely involved in the Colombian process. I'm in the Colombian capital to meet some of those people. Bogota is a city of 8 million, and like most of the major cities in the country, it avoided the worst of the conflict. I'm meeting Pat Colgan, who worked for years on implementing the Good Friday Agreement. Nowadays, he's working for peace in Colombia. I've been here since February. I ran the peace programs in Northern Ireland. 23,000 projects in total implemented there. A huge amount of sort of engagement in society. And I did an awful lot of work with the ex-prisoner groups in Northern Ireland. A lot of the former IRA, uh, UDA, UVF, um, and all their sort of political groupings and uh, representative groups. And out of that, basically, I got, I was invited to come to Bogota, talk to the government here. I was asked, would I be interested in being a part of it? And of course I would. I, so happens I speak Spanish. And, uh, so I'm here. The Irish role in the Colombian peace process comes as a result of events in Ireland almost 20 years ago. Good evening from Castle Buildings at Stormont outside Belfast on the day of a truly momentous agreement, promising a fundamental change in the political relationship between North and South and between Britain... After a 30-year winter of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland today has the promise of a springtime of peace. So how do the two peace deals compare? Well, the scale of the two countries is vastly different. There are huge differences. Number one, you're talking here about a country with a population of about 47 million people. I mean, population of Northern Ireland with the six border counties of Ireland, which is where the, if you like, the most affected by the conflict, is just a little over two million. The size of the country is just extraordinary, 1.1 million square kilometres here. What have we got? About 25,000 square kilometres in Northern Ireland, the border region of Ireland. So what does a small little place like Ireland with a population of 2 million have to contribute to a huge, complex environment like this? 
I think there is, and they say themselves here, a lot that, that can be learned. The EU is represented in Colombia by a special envoy, former Tornishta and Minister for Foreign Affairs Eamon Gilmore. He was in government when the peace deal was being negotiated in Ireland in the mid-90s, and he's in a good position to draw comparisons. I think there are a number of parallels. I, th I think, first of all, that the period of negotiation, if you measure the period from the first IRA ceasefire in 1994 to the Good Friday Agreement, it was about four years. Uh, the period of time for the formal negotiation between the government and FARC, the talks that took place in Havana, was four years. In both cases, the formal talks were preceded by a lot of informal discussion, uh, back-channel type uh, talks. The principal architect of the Colombian peace deal is President Manuel Santos. He took a big political gamble to end 50 years of conflict between the left-wing FARC rebels and the government. It's much easier to make war, much easier to lead in times of war. To make peace, you have to have a different type of leadership. You have to be able to convince people to change their minds, their attitudes, and, and that's much more difficult. But of course, no two conflicts or peace deals can ever be completely the same. The nature of the conflict was, was different. Uh, Northern Ireland was essentially national identity was a big part of it. In Colombia, that, that hasn't been a factor. In Colombia as well, of course, there's also the scale of the, the conflict. Uh, almost a quarter of a million people were, were killed in it. The only country in the world that has more landmines is Afghanistan. Uh, so the impact of the conflict was, uh, was enormous. It's on a much, much bigger scale. And of course also complicated by the illegal economy, particularly the illegal drugs trade, and the way in which that has continued, even to this day, even past the agreement, continued to be a source of violence in the country. Implementing the deal has a long way to go. Pat Colgan says it's an ambitious agreement. The agreement they've ended up with here is a monumental document. It's 400 pages long compared to our 30 pages or so in the Good Friday Agreement. The Colombian Agreement deals with issues like land reform, victims' rights, rebels returning to normal life and the entanglement of the narcotics industry in the conflict. In short, it aims to deal with all the injustices that underpin the conflict rather than just bringing an end to the violence. The first challenge for peace is getting the guns to go silent. The disarmament of the members of FARC themselves was completed really within about seven months. Um, if you compare that with uh, Northern Ireland, the uh, decommissioning of arms by the IRA was not completed for about seven years after uh, the Good Friday Agreement. So the disarmament phase of this process has moved very quickly. Ironically, there is a very real danger to FARC members, such as Illich, who I met at the transitional camp outside Bogotá, of reprisals from paramilitary gangs. The main risk in the peace process in Colombia is what we call the paramilitaries. The paramilitary is an army, but they are founded and directed by their political leaders, and it is undeniably a project of extreme right. The paramilitary has strong connections in all economic sectors of the country, agricultural and industrial, and in the public sector. Y en gran parte de la fuerza pública. 
The resolution of the conflict in Colombia is a complex process. There are many armed groups, big differences between the cities and rural areas, and getting groups like the FARC involved in politics will take time. The Colombian peace agreement was the subject of a referendum, just like in Ireland. But unlike in the Irish case, the Colombian referendum was narrowly defeated and the peace deal had to be renegotiated. In the peace deal, the plan is for the former fighters to reintegrate into Colombian society. But just like in Northern Ireland, you don't have to go far in Colombia to find opposition to the deal. Paloma Valencia is a leading figure in the main opposition party that led the no campaign in the referendum. We're at the parliament building. There's a lot of security. Entering and leaving, everybody is fingerprinted. Just outside the doors here in 1985, Pablo Escobar was behind an outrageous attack. One of the threats to the peace process comes if the opposition wins power in next year's elections. Paloma Valencia explains that they are unhappy with most of the agreement and believe FARC should be punished. We think there is a lot of things in the agreement that have to be modified. Of course, we are not asking to kill everybody or to surrender everybody. You can negotiate with them, but in terms that they have to be punished and that the society perceives they, they were punished and they have consequences for all the bad things they did. This wasn't like Northern Ireland where the peace deal was widely celebrated. Here it was met with significant opposition from much of the population. The main opposition party insists the FARC had very little support. FARC is a very isolated group which does not represent the interests of the nation. Uh, anywhere you can go, you will find that FARC has very little supporters all over the country. It was a terrorist group which was dealing with a lot of violence against the Colombian people, a lot of violence in, in, related with the narco-trafficking they were involved. In spite of this claim, the referendum on the peace agreement was only very narrowly defeated. The opposition party also have objections to the way victims are dealt with in the peace process, or even how a victim is defined. Again, not unlike the situation in Northern Ireland. The government is manipulating the victims in Colombia. They're only taking out the victims of the, of the state and just pushing out all the victims of FARC and all the leftist groups. But Pat Colgan says that unlike in Northern Ireland, the Colombian agreement is set up to more effectively deal with victims of violence. Their uh, transitional justice arrangements mean that they're not trying to uh, cover over the fact that crimes were committed. And I think that's one of the great things here, is they recognise that there were crimes committed by the state, by the security forces, by uh, combatants, if you like, or terrorists, depending on how, you, how you're going to call them. The great credit to the people here in this country is that nobody's trying to sort of brush over them or to pretend that they didn't happen or to say, look, we'll deal with that later. And I think in a way we were guilty of that in Northern Ireland, saying, look, look we'll come back and deal with that sort of later on. Katie James is a successful singer-songwriter in Colombia. This is one of her songs. Las montañas me invitan a andar, impaciencia en los pies. I'm visiting her in Bogotá. Do you take sugar? 
I take a little bit of milk. She was born in Ireland, moved to Colombia as a child, and her family story has a tragic connection to the conflict. I was born on Innisfree Island off the coast of Donegal when I was just about a year and a half old. My family moved to Colombia. My dad's from West Cork. He's from Clonakilty. And my mum's English. My mum founded this commune in Ireland called Atlantis, but they, they did primal therapy. I mean, in the 70s, it was a bit kind of extreme in, in Ireland. And um, because they did a lot of shouting, they were called the screamers by the media. So they were all over the media. Once the community moved to South America, the emphasis kind of changed and, and swerved more over to ecology. Katie's family were forced to leave their farm in the region of Tolima, then a FARC-controlled area, a few hundred kilometers west of Bogota. We were actually displaced by the FARC. We lived there for 11 years with no conflict with them. Like, we knew they were there, they knew we existed. Um, we actually agreed on many things they did, like with ecology, because they, they banned hunting and they banned clear-cutting. One day, a uh, um, FARC commander came along, like a, a new commander, because they, they change every certain amount of years, and he just didn't agree with gringos living in the area. He wasn't into that. And he said, you have a month to leave. So we had to leave a beautiful farm. <laughs> so the commander who had been there before said, look, you have to leave, but you can come back occasionally. You can visit your farm or you can visit friends. One incident in particular ties her family to the conflict in Colombia. It happened to her nephew who had moved out from Ireland. Tristan was a nephew of mine, Irish who lived with us here in Colombia, and he was actually murdered by the FARC. A year after we, we left, um, my nephew and his friend Javier wanted to go back just to say goodbye to some friends because they were going to go and live in, in Europe. And the night they arrived there, um, they were like, caught by some young milicianos um, from the FARC, probably just around the same age, 1920. He got murdered along with Javier Novoa. They were both just 18 at the time. I was 15 at the time. It was like everything was perfect until then. Tristan James and his friend Javier Noya were killed by the FARC in October of 2000. It's one of those murders that doesn't really have a, an explanation or a justification. I see it more as just it's not even political for me, it's just like young people who have power, who have a gun, who thought they were doing something good. And um, my, my nephew was very unlucky to walk into that. Yeah. So we've, we've lived the very beautiful side and the very hard side of, of Colombia. Deaths of Tristan and Javier were two of over 180,000 killings of civilians during the conflict. The EU peace envoy for Colombia, Eamon Gilmore, says involving victims early on in the peace process here is key. I mean, one of the things that I thought was a big strength 
of the Colombian uh, process was the involvement of victims in the early stages. I mean, the representatives of victims were made part of the, uh, of the negotiations. The victims and needs of victims is in the original agreement to a greater extent than was the case in, in Northern Ireland. There is a process around victims in Colombia known as transitional justice. It involves, on the one hand, getting people to admit what they did, but it has led to allegations of impunity that people won't be properly punished. Alejandra Gaviria's father, Francisco, was a left-wing politician and founding member of the Patriotic Union Party. It was a political party whose members included the FARC. He was killed by right-wing paramilitaries with the collusion of state forces. Two years after the creation of the party, more or less, my father was arrested, tortured and killed on December 10, 1987 which is ironically the International Day of Human Rights. At the time, this was part of a much bigger plan, the extermination of the party, and the killing of my father was not an isolated incident. There have been more than 5,000 murders in the Patriotic Union, and more than 50 massacres. The party was eradicated. There was a big operation with armed agents. My father's office was in the city center of Medellin, and they surrounded it. They stopped traffic and passers-by, surrounded the place with trucks and stormed into the office asking for Francisco Gaviria. When they found him, my father started yelling he was being kidnapped and asked everyone to call his family as soon as possible and let them know. Some people in the office called my grandmother. I was six years old. My sister was eight. Alejandra now campaigns for victims of the violence in Colombia. The killing of so many politicians means the peace agreement has to allow FARC to rebuild a political party in order to participate in the political life of the country. In the north of Colombia, near the Panamanian border, I'm visiting a very special community who has struggled to keep the FARC, the state, and the paramilitaries out of their community. For years, they were caught in the crossfire between the army, FARC, and paramilitary gangs. <laughs> the sign here says that basically is a sort of declaration of values. It says the people who are living here reject the presence of any arms in their territory. They don't consume alcohol. And they don't participate in any, any war or conflict directly or indirectly. Um, it's been here for 20 years. So they've been here for a good while. They've had a very hard time um, because uh, paramilitaries and, and, and state forces. The San Jose Peace Community is a collective that grows organic cacao, one of the chief ingredients in making chocolate, and sells it internationally. Despite living along a key drug trafficking route, they've managed to avoid growing coca for the narcotics trade. Maria Brigida Gonzalez is one of the founders of the community. She believes that the FARC moving out of the area doesn't meet the end of the conflict. With the signing of the peace agreement, the paramilitaries say the guerrillas are gone and they are now in control, with the support of the local authorities, of course. They say the guerrillas are gone and they have taken control of the cocaine, which makes us ask ourselves, 
Who is really going to be in charge? The drug trafficking network? Are we supposed to believe there will be peace in the country if drug dealers are in charge? We don't believe that. The UN says 80% of the killings in the conflict were by paramilitary gangs, often with the collusion of state forces, while only 12% were by FARC and the other 8% by state forces. Maria Brigida tells me her own family has suffered paramilitary violence. I lost a daughter, a 15-year-old girl. She was killed by the army. They massacred six youngsters, three women and three men. Of the three women, my daughter-in-law and my daughter were killed. Victims and transitional justice is just one of six parts of the peace deal negotiated in Havana, Cuba, last year. Like the Good Friday Agreement, it was four years in the making, with people like Eamon Gilmore and Pat Colgan helping from the sidelines. I was invited to go to Havana to talk to the FARC. You know, when they were asking me, what did we do in Northern Ireland? How did it work? How did the programs work? What sort of procedures did we have in place and so on? This was a very much a Colombian process. The negotiations were very much direct negotiations between uh, the Colombian government and, and FARC. The, the role of the international community and of special envoys and so on was much more to provide an outer ring of, of support uh, to, to that process. What um, I think the Northern Ireland experience certainly gave me in terms of the discussions that I had with negotiators was the importance of persisting, that the, the solution will be found around the table. I think the people who impressed me most actually were the women, las guerrilleras as they called themselves, the, the women who had been involved in the FARC over many, many years. And they spoke about the fighting that they had had to ensure that gender issues were included as an important element in the agreements. And if you look at the agreements, they're actually a model in terms of uh, recognition of gender equality, uh, LGBT rights, uh, and, and the overall sort of issue of sort of gender equality. Extraordinary. They spoke about their life as uh, guerrilleras of, of, of uh, fighters uh, on the, in the jungles and in the fields, in the mountains. And they said, what we're most afraid of is that there's an expectation that when we lay down our arms, they will expect us to take up the pots and pans in the kitchen. And that uh, we see ourselves as transformed and we want to look at the role of women in society as something completely different. So that was, that was quite an impressive thing. But generally, I felt that the negotiators on the FARC side uh, had a genuine interest in uh, understanding what the issues were, what the lessons were from Northern Ireland and how they could apply them. Colombian government officials and FARC rebels are gathering in Havana, Cuba, to announce a historic ceasefire nearly four years in the making. When I spoke to a senior member of FARC, Gabriel Ángel, he made it clear that FARC are not standing down, or in military terms, demobilizing. He says the word demobilize suggests to give up the fight, but what FARC are doing is giving up their weapons in order to transition to a new form of political struggle. Although the deal was signed in June of 2016, there was a lot more to be done. Just like in Ireland, it had to be ratified by a referendum, but unlike in Ireland, it was defeated. 
In Colombia, voters have rejected a peace agreement between the government and the nation's largest rebel group in a shocking turn of events that threatens to prolong the nation's 52-year-old civil war. By a razor-thin vote of 50.2 to 49.8 percent, Colombians rejected the peace deal hammered out with the FARC guerrilla movement. And I mean, FARC were ready to ago. commence the disarmament. The referendum is defeated. So the question is, what happens now? Do they go back into the jungle? Do they return to their, their camps? Uh, does the whole thing fall apart or, you know, can it be put together? I think there were concerns also uh, <clears throat> after the American presidential election about whether or not there would be a change in US policy in relation to uh, Colombia. As in Northern Ireland, as in every region emerging from conflict, uh, you have huge bitterness on various sides. I mean, the politics of no is still quite alive and well here. The politics of not an inch, which we know very well, is still very strong and very alive here. The peace deal has since been renegotiated and approved and is now making its way item by item through the Colombian parliament. And the defeat has given momentum to the opposition party that led the no campaign. Colombian people had a lot of things they, that they are very concerning for us. We think that crimes against humanity should be punished. That's Colombian Senator Paloma Valencia. That they should go in, in some kind of imprisoned uh, sentences that shows to the world and to the Colombians that we will not admit that kind of crimes again. This opposition to the peace deal in Colombia has echoes of resistance to the Irish peace process. Pat Colgan explains how that Irish experience can now be of help. Jeffrey Donaldson, for example, is out here quite frequently speaking to people on the no side. Lord Alderdice is coming next week to talk to people about the journey that those politicians and parliamentarians sort of travelled. In spite of such hardening of attitudes in opposition to the deal, FARC fighters like Illich are still committed to the peace. If the ruling class in Colombia do not understand that this is the time to take a step forward as a nation and allow democracy, they are going to miss the opportunity to give our country a viable future. We are certain we will surrender our weapons and we will join the political process. To understand more about how younger people in Colombia think of the peace process, I'm off to meet a group of musicians in the city of Medellin. Walking through the streets of Medellin, a <laughs> rainy night, and uh, the sound of traditional Irish music is emanating out of a doorway in the distance. So tonight we're having an Irish music session. We're a group of musicians that get together from time to time. We all love Irish music. Carolina Arango organized the session. When I was about 15, a dervish band, they came to Colombia and I saw them playing live and I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I got the chance to, to go to Ireland. I, I was there for six years and I did a master's degree in Irish music. Most of the people at the session were not even born when the conflict with the FARC began in Colombia. Among these younger Colombians, there is an understanding of the peace process. You know, when I was born, 
there, there was already a war here. And it's like the only thing I know. As I was a young boy, like 10 years old, you couldn't get out of Medellin because you were in, in danger. It, it was not safe to trip around the country. The referendum result came as a big shock to people like Carolina and David Gavidia. When people voted no, we, like, mainly young people, we kind of lost hope, you know. It was so hard, we were so broken-hearted. It was, it was really, we were devastated. So then when they signed for uh, the peace, it was like, is this really happening? Is this going to last? So many, so many people are against it, so... They also experienced a new kind of political campaigning. In Britain, with the Brexit, and here with the peace process, and, and in the States, What's for Trump? example, with Trump, it's all about fear and how to feed people with fear to, to change their minds. To, to get people to vote no, for example, they lied to people, telling them that they were going to lose their pensions if they voted yes. Um, the no um, people pay people to, you know, to tell Christians that if they voted yes, everyone was going to become, you know, gay or something like that. And that they had to vote no because of that, and that was supported by the Christian churches here. Most of the urban population in Colombia have had little to do with the conflict. But for young people like David and Carolina, there is enthusiasm for the peace. Some people say that having FARC in normal politics will lead to Colombia becoming like Venezuela or Cuba. So is that something that you worry about? If you want to change, it's better if you're in politics than carrying a weapon and killing people. It's, it's the way to do it. I, don't, I can't see how else I, it's going to change. Say, so for example, you found yourself working with somebody who used to fight in FARC and now they're living in Medellin and they work with you. Would that, living alongside you, would that be strange or difficult? Or? Not to me. Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, like if, if I could teach them music, if I could, I, I wouldn't have any problem. Perhaps the biggest difference between the Irish and Colombian conflicts is the drug trade. In Colombia, it's said to be worth $10 billion a year. That's about 1% of the total economy. The narcotics trade remains a highly politicised subject. We don't fully understand at home at all uh, this whole question of drugs and of narco-traffic and how deeply rooted it is here. Probably their image of Colombia is formed by Netflix programmes like Narcos and Pablo Escobar and all that sort of stuff. When the FARC agreed to lay down their arms uh, and moved out of certain areas. Paramilitaries here are the ones who have, uh, if you like, criminal bands move in, take over territories that were previously occupied by the FARC, and they take over the sort of the criminal management of the assets of a particular region or territory in terms of exploiting the local people and the production of narcotic uh, crops. So that's a huge part of the sort of economic kind of infrastructural uh, transformation that needs to be done here. There's a complicated connection between narco-trafficking, paramilitaries, the state and the FARC, and opinion is divided on how effective the peace process can be in dealing with the problem. For Pat Colgan, it's about persuading farmers to stop growing drug crops. It's not a Hollywood thing, it's not a Netflix thing, you know, it's about bread and butter issues in small villages and communities. 
the president of Colombia insists progress is being made in the area of crop substitution. Oh, well, we have diminished uh, the uh, number of families that are dedicated to the cultivation of the coca crops by two-thirds. Uh, we have uh, caught, uh, we interdicted more cocaine, for example, last year than ever before. We have learned how to dismantle the big drug cartels. But if you continue to demand the cocaine in the United States or in Europe, uh, you will always have somebody to, uh, to supply that. In the peace community I've visited, they've avoided growing crops for the narco-traffickers. Ramiro, one of the community's farmers, tells me that they want their future to be in chocolate and cocoa butter sold directly to the West. In England, where we sell this cacao, it is not used for chocolate. They sell it for the fat in it, to make soaps and hair products and shampoos, all those things that come from cocoa butter, from the fat. In Germany, they use it mostly for other types of products, for chocolate and other things. A lot of people in the world congratulate us for having a product that sells internationally with such good quality. It is also something that helps maintain so many families. Across Colombia, many people will continue to struggle to build dignified and sustainable lives in spite of continuing violence. The Colombian peace deal promises a major transformation of the country, and if the government can succeed in doing that, it just might work. Many people here fear the international community will turn away, thinking the peace deal itself means the problems are sorted out. But as the Irish experience has shown, peace is a slow and ongoing process. For now, like many people in Colombia, Maria Brigitte Gonzalez isn't feeling particularly positive about the peace deal. Can we really talk about peace in a country where there is conflict? Can we talk about peace where there is unemployment? Can we talk about peace when even the police and the military trample on their own people? I believe peace is something else. I think peace is such a beautiful word because of all the things it entails. But to reach peace, we need a lot of things. Pero para construir la paz se necesitan muchas cosas. 